On this Thanksgiving week, I looked deep inside my soul and asked, what am I most thankful for? And you know what it was? The Riff. In all seriousness, I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving and that this latest episode of the podcast shakes you out of your turkey-induced coma. This is the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, as you know, where I speak with the world's best artists about creating works of nonfiction. Leaders from narrative journalism, memoir, essay, radio, and documentary film, and try to tease out the origins, habits, and routines that allow you to improve your own work. And for episode 77, I welcome Blair Briody. That's at Blair Briody on Twitter. B-L-A-I-R-E-B-R-I-O-D-Y. Blair Briody is a freelance journalist who has written for the New York Times, Popular Science, Popular Mechanics, Fast Company, Glamour, among others. Her first nonfiction book, The New Wild West, Black Gold, Fracking and Life in a North Dakota Boomtown just came out this fall. The book was the 2016 finalist for the Lucas Work in Progress Award from Columbia Journalism School and Harvard University. And she received the Richard J. Margolis Award for Social Justice Journalism in 2014. She graduated from UC Davis with a degree in international relations and lives in Northern California. Now, now also, Blair won Proximity Magazine's second annual Narrative Journalism Prize, and that's kind of what gets her on the podcast this week. For her piece, It Takes a Boom, which chronicles Cindy Marcello, the lone woman in the vast fracking sites in North Dakota. Ted Conover, author of several books and Immersion journalist of the highest order judge the contest you can hear him back on episode 50 of the creative nonfiction podcast and here's what he had to say about blair's gold medal piece quote this vivid portrait of a woman trying to work oil fields during the fracking boom rings totally true we seldom meet people like cindy marcello in narrative journalism but i don't doubt for a second they're here i love the frankness and the matter of factness both Blair Briody and her subject won my heart and admiration, end quote. Nice. Speaking of being thankful, reviews and ratings have been flowing in, and I want to extend a big, big thanks to those who are doing that and taking advantage of my editing offer as a result. So what is this exactly? In exchange for an honest, honest review, doesn't even have to be a good one, just an honest one, Review on iTunes, I'm offering an hour of my time to work with you on a piece of writing. All you have to do is leave your review, and when it posts, email me a screenshot of it. As long as it's postmarked any time between November 2017 and the end of December 2017, the offer stands. Reviews are the new currency, and your help will go a long way toward building the community this podcast sets out to make. To empower others to pick up the pen, or the camera, or the microphone... And do work that scratches that creative itch. Okay, now what? The first half of this interview actually had to be completely cut out. Hey, easy, easy. Like, hear, hear me out, please. Why? There were some nasty internet gremlins wreaking all kinds of havoc, havoc with our connection. It sounded like an old 
Apple computer chugging in the background, mixed in with some heavy thumps, maybe an aquarium aerator. I mean, that none of that actually happened, but that was kind of the sound going on. So, I mean, it was weird, but more than that, it was extremely distracting. So instead of putting you through that, fair listener, I'm going to sum up the first part of the interview in a few hundred words. Then we'll get to the second half that I recorded through a different connection that sounds just fine. Okay, so Blair was working at the fiscal time to New York City and heard about Williston, North Dakota, for one unique attribute. It had one of the lowest unemployment rates in the entire country. Thanks to the hydrofracking boom, workers flocked to North Dakota for the long hours and the hopes of six-figure pay. She traveled to North Dakota more or less on a whim. Getting access took time and rigor, essentially knocking on doors and finding balance of being interested without being too eager. Blair found one man who struck her as a great character, but by her own account, she was a bit stalkerish, wanting to follow him home and observe his wedding. A great scene, no doubt, but she stopped, he stopped returning her calls, so Blair moved on. Eventually, she found Cindy Marcello, the main character of uh, the main character in It Takes a Boom, by reaching out to a CNN reporter who had done a story on Marcello. In Blair's reporting, she favors recorders for the interviews and notebooks for observations. She said, quote, I have to type up my notes at the end of the day because I can't decipher it myself, end quote. What drew Blair to journalism was being able to ask strangers questions that would normally seem rude in normal social context. Plus, writing the next great American novel felt too daunting, so nonfiction relieved her of needing to rely too heavily on imagination alone. To quote Maddie Blaze, reality was compelling enough. Blair knew early that news writing wasn't her thing. She wanted to do magazine features, but pitching was a challenge, so she took a class, a media bistro class, on pitching. You know what? It worked. She worked on a story for that class about a young woman who was a math genius in a more or less all-male world, not unlike what Cindy Marcello was up to in North Dakota. And that's where we pick up the conversation as we get into the weeds of how Blair crafts and sends out pitches. You'll also find out in this part of the interview what part of the process most engages Blair, how talent by and large is overrated, how the ordinary can become the extraordinary, and how Blair uses document maps to organize her reporting. A lot of good stuff. So if you stick around, uh, I mean, you've got to be sick of me by now. So let's hear Blair Briotti talk and Thank you for was, listening. Yeah, I was asking Here's you about Blair. the how you go about querying, and you were saying you like right. to go in with a little bit of some pre-reporting, which is really, really smart. And um, so just kind of elaborate on that and what that process looks like. And um, and uh, at what point at, do you feel comfortable then pitching a story? And maybe even how do you how do you do that pre-reporting, not knowing and lining up a source and saying, like, I don't know where this is going to land yet, but if you indulge me a little bit, um, I'll be able to maybe successfully pitch it after we've done a little bit of sort of pre-reporting. So, like, how does that manifest itself for you? Yeah, I mean, yeah, like what I was saying before is I tend to have more success when I find the story first and then find a magazine that I think it'll fit in. Um, And to me, again, I think it comes down to um, finding who the main character is going to be. Um, 
because for me, I mean, even as a reader, that sells me on a story pretty quickly if I'm engaged with who the person is. And then um, with the magazine, just giving, you know, arguing your case for why uh, the story is important now and um, sort of the larger context, you know, and why it's timely and necessary um, to publish. And what would you say is your most successful cold pitch? Um, well, I would probably say, so after, you know, I took that class through Media Bistro and I, you know, worked on this uh, feature story about the mathlete, the female mathlete. And she, and then after, you know, publishing that in the small magazine monthly, I pitched my next story to the New York Times and that was accepted. And that was a piece that I basically was in New York and I was riding the subway and I just observed this scene in front of me where this guy approached this girl and was trying to convince her to be a model. And he said he was a model scout. And um, she, at first, you know, was a little standoffish, thought he was, you know, was maybe a little creepy. But then ultimately she like took his business card um, and I just was just the observer like walking, you know, I kind of followed them out of the subway for a few blocks and, um, and then I like immediately when I got home, I just wrote up the scene that I had witnessed and then basically just put, you know, I think I did, I did one quick interview after that with the actual model scout um, and you know, just did this this pitch about, you know, who are these people? Like, is this an actual, you know, job path? Is this, are, are they legitimate? You know, how can people tell? Uh, so, you know, I was like, I had this scene. I had, you know, I showed I did a little research by um, talking to a model scout. And, you know, I think I just included a quote from him in the pitch. And then just basically just said, I want to look into this more. I want to, you know. I had a, I have these questions about this industry and want to pursue this. Awesome, awesome. And and when you had that conversation with that scout, did you say I have this idea? I'm looking to pitch to the New York Times, or did do you say that I have? No, I think I just said you know I'm cu- I'm a writer. I'm curious about this industry. Can you tell me a little more about it? You know, I, I might pitch this somewhere. I mean, it was pretty vague about it. Sometimes I, with people, when I'm doing that initial research, I say, you know, I've written for these places before. I'm thinking about pitching it here or here. But yeah, back back then, I didn't really have a whole lot of clips. So I just said I was doing some research. Yeah, yeah. Because in my experience, sometimes some people just don't want to talk to me at all because they don't know who I'd Mm -hmm. be writing it for. But it's like, if you can bait them with a known media empire right. and be like, oh, okay, right. well, this behooves me to talk to this person. But if you end up wanting to just do some research, like, I don't know where this is going to go. It might just be an essay for a literary journal. They might be like, meh. So, right. And so I, I wonder right. if like, you had that in the holster. Yeah, no, it can be more challenging when you don't have an assignment um, for some people to talk. But, 
But I think, I mean, most people, if you just say that, you know, you're a freelance writer, you know, you kind of have to explain what that means because not everyone understands that. But that, you know, you'll be, you're doing sort of the initial legwork for this story. Um, That's usually how I try to frame it. Not totally sure where this is going yet, but, you know, you can still help me and hopefully, you know, it'll nice yeah i like i like how you frame that the you know i'm i'm just you know i'm a freelancer or i'm an independent writer you know doing some initial framework i'm hoping to land it maybe out of the like a, a, a b right. and c um but right. i need to do a little it would be nice to speak to somebody first to give me a little more uh sort of right. juice for it that's great yeah Exactly. So how do you vet out your stories and uh you know what sinks there what do you sink your teeth into and what as a result, like kind of sinks its teeth into you as you uh, pursue yeah. a story and doesn't let go. Yeah, I mean, I've I've written about quite a few different topics, so I would say topic-wise, I consider myself more of a generalist. But um, yeah, like what I said earlier, you know, just those stories that you can't seem to get away from that they keep you keep thinking about them. Those I try to always pursue those when that's the case. Um, and that's usually, you know, comes from either a story, some, you know, someone telling you and you're just shocked by it or fascinated and you can't stop thinking about it. Or, um, like I said, like the setting, like in North Dakota, I was, you know, just so curious about what was actually going on there and what that setting was like. And then, but yeah, sometimes it's an industry, like with the, the model scouts. Or... So yeah, I, I don't, you know, it, there isn't necessarily just one factor that causes me to pursue a story, but, but usually, yeah, usually it's just, I can't, you know, usually I can't find that much else about it that's been written, or at least, you know, I can't find much out about the angle that I'm thinking about, and so... Yeah, and it seems like you're partly drawn to um, you know, these the women who are like deeply immersed in like very male dominated industry too, with the the math lead yeah. and yeah, definitely. and Cindy. I think yeah, like interesting gender dynamics. I think has always fascinated me. Whether that's yeah, you know, being one of the few females, or the only female, or um, you know, being in this environment where there's you know. You're you're constantly you can't really get away from it. You're constantly thinking about like the gender dynamics. So. And so, when you were doing all, yeah, all of your reporting, say for for the book and um, or even a longer feature, uh, when you get all that information, how do you start to begin to organize it so then it's accessible to you to then shape it into a story? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the most challenging parts about it is coming home with, you know, reams of material and, you know, hours upon hours of interview tapes you have to transcribe. That's like a very, I think that's one of the hardest parts of the whole process. It's very daunting. Um, I, in North Dakota, I ended up, I used just basically a Word document and doc, I don't know if you've ever used document maps. No, Word. no. Tell me about it. Um, I, I show a lot of people this feature that is on Microsoft Word where you you basically just create subheads through the document 
and you can tag it so you can flip through easily, you know, just like a table of contents. And so, you know, I, the actual document, you know, in the end became like 300 pages, but, you know, I would just tag, you know, this is the interview, this is the date, this is, you know, the general topic of it. And then the actual transcription would be in a, a separate document. But then I could, um, you know, I had like story ideas in that document. I had people I wanted to call. I had, you know, some articles that I was reaching. I just kept everything in one document. That was a lot easier for me to to be able to kind of see it all right there. And so then, yeah, I tried, you know, I would try to type up all my notes at the end of the day. Um, so that helped and yeah, and then it's just a lot of like uh, sorting through the pile and you know trying to figure out. Yeah, it's that's a hard. That's definitely a hard part. I feel, I think I feel lost a lot of the time during that process. So, say you've got all your notes together. Uh, what's your next step? Do you do you choose to outline? Do you use corkboard and index cards? Like, what does that process yeah. look as you go forward? Yeah, I try to do like a very loose outline. I don't always stick to it. And I think for this book project with North Dakota, I I don't know if it was the best process, but what I basically did was, you know, I had a summer of reporting. I worked on the book proposal. And then I, I needed to go back out and get more material. So I, you know, I wrote, I would, I would come home, I would, from a trip out there, sort through all the material I gathered. I would write a chapter. You know, usually I was like, you know, if I was spending a lot of time with um, one or two of the people in the book, then I would focus, I'd be like, okay, I have more material for this section that I want to write about. And so I'd work on that section, and then I would get to a point where I'd be like, well, now I need more material. And so I'd, you know, book another trip out to North Dakota and, like, spend another couple of weeks out there and then come home and like do the same thing. I haven't heard of like of a lot of other people that have done it that way. I think most people try to get all their material first and then start writing. But for me, I think because I didn't totally know which direction I was going for a while, it, it helped me figure that out to do it that way. So. Mm. And at what point did you feel comfortable to then tackle your book proposal? And, and what did that look like? You know, you had you had, had the previous book proposal experience and then you were able to, to have this one. Right. So what uh, right. you know, So what did you learn from the first experience and then how did you start shaping the yeah. new one? I mean, I think one uh, criticism that a lot of book editors will give uh, magazine journalists and freelance editors is that their book proposal feels like a magazine article, you know? And so that, that was some criticism I got in the first one where it was just, it was basically mini magazine profiles on all these towns. Like that's what the idea was. And so I knew that with the North Dakota book, I wanted more of these through lines of, you know, I, I didn't want it to just be, okay, here's this one character and here's like a, you know, standalone uh, feature article in like a few chapters. And so, so yeah, I tried to, to 
have that come through in the book proposal, but, you know, I wanted, like, the through lines were going to be this, this town, there was going to be me and my experience, and then I was going to have these various perspectives. I followed, like, five people um, who were all in different situations out there, and then, um, you know, and they, they weren't just, like, a single chapter. They were, you know, throughout the whole book. They would, I would kind of would weave their narratives together. So, so yeah, but the book proposal basically was one chapter that I wrote about Donnie Nelson, which is, who is a farmer out in North Dakota, who has a lot of oil wells on his land. And I thought that was a good example for the book proposal because it, it talked about, you know, the environmental aspects, about, I was able to talk about these changes that he's witnessed and what the state was like before. Um, so I thought he was a good example to include in the proposal. And then, you know, just a detailed um, outline of, of how the rest of the chapter would be. And like book proposals and pitches, um, you know, there's a degree of salesmanship involved there. Um, what would you say are some best practices for people who might be struggling with uh, landing pitches or even even book proposal which are far more like an intensive process book proposal but uh right. they're similar in nature in terms that you're trying to ultimately sell someone on something so what what have you found to be best practices involved in in either or um well yeah i mean as far as the book proposal for me it was a learning process because i almost had to like unlearn the magazine pitching and writing mm. process. Like, yeah. It was like, I kept getting that feedback that like, this isn't a magazine article. You have to think differently. And like, you know, this is a, a, you want this book to still be interesting and relevant like 10 years from now. And that was really hard for me to wrap my head around. Um, you know, I'd just been trained for so long to be thinking about, you know, how to make this timely right now. So I, I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to think of good, best practice for either one but um they're just they're so different so yeah yeah i guess uh, i guess a lot of it comes down to more with magazine pitches versus book proposals is just repetition just do a lot of them and get a lot right, of rejections right right right. Uh, right and i actually you know i took a class too um in new york about writing book proposals so i think i mean that's always been helpful for me to get um you know, get feedback that way. And, and, and classes are really great because, you know, you have, um, you know, an assignment due every week, you know, you have to like keep working at it. So, yeah. Would you say that, that maybe, maybe some people are a little gun shy about taking those kind of continuing ed classes and stuff on how valuable would you say those were to your continued success as a writer? Yeah. I mean, for me, they've been, invaluable so but you know I also the, the quality of class you get in New York was really great I mean that like the teacher that taught the book proposal class you know he was an agent at you know a major agency and so he to to be able to get you know his expertise and his feedback was great but you know there's a lot there's a lot of that out there like with conferences and you know I think if you're if you're in a place outside of New York City where there's not classes like that available. You know, you can go to workshops and stuff, travel to go to those. Mm -hmm. And so with 
you know, going to a fairly remote area in North Dakota for doing a big bulk of your reporting for your book and uh, the piece that won you the prize. Um, I suspect that even though you were interacting with a lot of the people out there, that you probably felt pretty lonely on on some level, too. And I wonder, like, maybe if if that's true at all, like, how did you fight off that sense of loneliness and isolation and, and doubt while you were out there? Yeah, no, that's always something I struggle with with this work is it does get pretty lonely. Um, one thing I did in North Dakota, though, is I actually hired um, a photographer and a videographer to come out there just for, you know, I think they each came out for like five days. Um, and that was really helpful because then, you know, I could talk to them about this work. I could, uh, they, you know, stayed out in the trailer with me for a little bit. So, you know, they, I introduced them to a lot of the, the subjects that I was writing about. So, yeah, I think just, you know, finding ways to collaborate whenever possible, I guess. What, uh, it, it, during the process, like, where where do you feel most alive? Yeah, is it the reporting stage, the writing phase, rewriting? Like, where do you feel most engaged? Yeah. I mean, I love, I love the reporting process, even though it's a lot of hard work, um, just getting into... Uh, great conversations with people, you know, that's kind of what it comes down to. And, um, and, and knowing when you, you know, just like coming home from an interview and just feeling really excited about the material and, um, just knowing that, you know, you, you have interesting material basically is a great feeling. As far as the writing process, for me, the first draft is pretty awful. (laughs) <laughs> um, but I, I don't like that part at all. Um, and it's, yeah, it's like pulling teeth every single day to, to get stuff down. But then I like that part right after I have something, you know, I have a draft and, you know, almost like before you, sh- you show it to anyone and you're like in that part of, okay, you have something down and now you have to clean it up and, you know, fiddle with it and tweak it and make it. You know, readable and ready to show someone else. Um, I, I think I like that part because it's not, you know, before it becomes like a major revision, it's just, and you have something down. So. And how do you define uh, rigor and hard work in, in this line of work? You know, what are your metrics that when you look back at the end of the day, you know, you feel like, oh yeah, I accomplished a lot today. Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of what it all comes down to is the, the hard work. Um, you know, I, yeah, I don't know exactly, like, what, to, to me, what is considered a successful day. Because sometimes, you know, I, even though I was working all day, I don't feel like I really got anywhere, but that's part of the process. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, yeah, I mean, even, you know, I remember in college, I would read these other, you know, some of my peers and some of their writing, and they seemed so talented. They just seemed like, you know, naturally just so talented at writing. And I remember thinking, you know, feeling jealous, not feeling like I have the same talent level. And so I remember thinking, okay, I just have to like outwork them. I have to work twice as hard as they do to be able to do this. And I think that's that's really served me because. I followed some of their careers a little bit after college and a lot of them ended up not 
pursuing writing. Um, so to me, I think that's what it, a lot of it comes down to is doing the work. Yeah. And there's, there's a fine line between being like using that, uh, being competitive with other people and then let, letting that turn into toxicity. Um, it looks like you, you looked at them and had those little pangs of jealousy or competitiveness, but you, you turned it into, okay, you know what? I, maybe they might be a little more gifted than I am, but they're never going to be able to outwork me. So how, where did that come from? Like, how were you able to make that, make that, uh, distinction in your mind and not let the, those black feelings get inside you and keep you from accomplishing great work? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I think just, that's a, yeah, that's a good question. I am not sure exactly what caused me to, to have that attitude, but, but yeah, I think I've just seen, you know, that talent is only a small part of the equation. And, um, and especially with report, you know, with journalism, because good reporting is good writing. And I think a lot of the people that I read, like Ted Conover and, and Joseph Mitchell and all, like, you can tell that so much of the work was the reporting that they, you know, just immerse themselves in these really interesting situations or, or around interesting people. And that, that's such a big part of what causes their work to come alive is, is, you know, relying on that interesting material, which you have to to be able to get that, you have to do the work reporting. So, um, I think probably being influenced by some of those other writers. Yeah. When you, when you figure out that, um, that a lot of times uh, these great long form pieces, they, they stem from being having the liberty to spend a lot of time with uh, a lot of people, and they speak to dozens and oh, their phone phone going on in the background. Yeah, sorry right. about that. No, that's all right. <laughs> I just I had like some panic attack that we were having another weird connection issue, and so... oh no, no, <laughs> I think it just stopped. Right. Um, um, yes, my my point being is that a lot of the stuff is it's echoing your point that um that these great profiles and features that they stem from such unbelievable um, feats of reporting and just talking to a lot of people. And you wonder like, how did they get that material? Well, the fact is they they talk to a lot of people and they ask this person, like, who can I speak with now? And we like, they give you five people and then it, geez, it spreads exponentially from there. It's like, has that been your experience? Like the more interviews and the more reporting you do, you're like, Oh wow, this just keeps getting richer and richer. Oh, yeah, definitely. And just the time. I mean, you know, like what you said, like spending the time with people. I mean, that, I think, like, Susan Arlene was very influential in that case. Like, the the ordinary can always become extraordinary if you give someone enough time, you know, that everyone can be a fascinating character in person if you peel back enough layers. Um, so I think having that in my head that, like, you know, even if you doesn't feel like you have a lot now. Like if you just, you know, spend some more time around someone, it's amazing what will come out of that. Yeah. And the, I guess the danger to that is 
sometimes you might hide yourself and more reporting and more research will will lead right. to yeah eventually it's a way of procrastinating to you know eventually you have to get to the writing part so when when do right. you know in your experience when do you know that you're done reporting by and large yeah i mean especially with this book project i kind of kept reporting i think that is a really hard part for me is like to, to stop and to, to feel like you have enough and i i think with my process of you know coming home and being like well let me just write what i have right now even though it doesn't feel like enough but then once you start writing you're like okay actually you know i do have a decent amount um, and then just seeing where the holes are, just being like, okay, well, I have this and I have this, but it would be great to get more of this aspect of, you know. So um, for me, that that was helpful in the process to be to just start writing, even though I didn't feel like I had enough and I could have kept reporting. So. And what are so maybe three to five books that you find yourself rereading again over and over as kind of a – a North Star, if you will. Yeah, I mean, I already mentioned some of the writers, but yeah, like Joseph Mitchell, like Up in the Old Hotel, um, and uh, Susan Arlene's The Orchid Beef, and she's just incredible with character development in that book. And then for um, this book, I read a lot of, like I read uh, Rebecca Sklutz, Henrietta Lacks, book mm-hmm. a couple times um, just to see her structure. She she talks a lot about how she structured that book and there were so many moving parts and like I think it spans like a decade of work that she did and and so just that was really helpful to kind of see this you know this book with a, a lot of different information and a lot of different characters and how she organized it. So I, I studied a lot of books that had, um, you know, the structure that I was imagining, like having these like narratives that you could weave together. Um, I also actually, I love the Game of Thrones books by George R. R. Martin. Mm-hmm. And I actually really liked the way he structures them just with the different, you know, characters. Uh, he, anyway, so many different characters that he's able to successfully like weave them together that you're engaged with them the whole time. So I used a lot of that, those types of books to help me with this one. Hmm. And what other artistic media do you like to consume that helps um, inform the writing you do? I like podcasts, like This American Life and Radio Lab, and you know, I, I like those. Um, yeah, some. You know, documentary work. I, th- I mean, I think just even shows, just the way um, they, you know, build suspense and keep you wanting to see the next show is almost like a chapter that you, you know, you want to keep. <laughs> you, you, you know, you wrap some stuff up, but you leave um, some information to help build some suspense. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like Stranger Things or Breaking Bad, uh, how they right. the um, what a big takeaway I took from Breaking Bad, aside from the the serialized nature of it and suspense and such, was how Vince Gilligan ran or runs a writing room and how they 
go about putting the index cards up on the board. Like it is, it comes across mm-hmm. artful, the final product, but it is incredibly structured and very yeah. well thought out to the point where they put those building blocks and then the writer then takes that cork board and then writes the episode, wrote the episode. So it's, uh, right. yeah, it's like, um, you know, in conversations I've had with a lot of people, it's like great art can, just because something is well structured and well thought out doesn't mean you can't make great art from it. Right. Yeah. It's like the boundaries are able to, you know, mm-hmm. working within constraints can sometimes free you up artistically. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And do you find that, uh, if you had to say start over at age 25, is there anything that you've learned, uh, up to this point where you're like, Oh, I wish I knew that then. And then that could have accelerated things for me a little more. Yeah, I mean, what I was saying earlier, just with, you know, wanting to do magazine feature writing, but not knowing exactly how to get there and thinking that, you know, working in a magazine would be, uh, you know, I, I think it's hard just when you're just starting out, like you immediately want to do this work and you don't, <laughs> at least I didn't want to like take the time and the steps to really develop myself as a writer. I just wanted to be doing it immediately so I think if I was to go back I would I might just work at a newspaper or somewhere where you're just writing every single day regardless of if you actually like the writing um I think that's really helpful to just build those skills um because I think I started doing that a little later and I, I wish I'd just been doing it earlier mm-hmm. to to write something every single day even if it's like tech writing or something that you're you're not excited about, but you can, you know, still be developing a lot of skills that way. Yeah. And with your writing features and stuff takes, takes a a bit of time, even if you're doing thousand or 1500 word features, they still take several hours, uh, even weeks. And I wonder how many, how often, like how many features do you have going at a time and how many pitches do you try to write uh per week um just to give maybe give people an idea of what it takes to sustain a freelance uh career yeah. and features yeah i mean it really varies you know depending on what i have going on and especially with the book i didn't write a lot of other features and now you know i have once you build develop a connection the relationship with an editor, it gets a lot easier. And, you know, I can just, like, my editor Glamour, I send her a couple sentences about something I want to work on um, versus writing an entire pitch. Um, so I don't, like, now I don't send out a lot of those long pitches anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but, so yeah, I, don't, I think, as, you know, and at the beginning, I think I always have had, like, other things going on, too, like either teaching or... Like in my 20s, I was doing dog sitting on top of writing. So just having like some sort of stability really helps me, like free me to to pursue a story that like I might not make anything off of, but I'm really interested in it and passionate about it. So I think that's always helped me having some some sort of income or stability to help me do that. Do you have uh, something like uh, something of that nature right now, or are you in a place where your writing is supporting you full time? Um, no, I teach. I teach you right now. Te- I teach like an, yeah, a night class, and then do some substitute teaching as well. So, uh-huh. so yeah, I've always t- 
tried to to have something. I love I love hearing that Blair that you know that to hear you say you know you have this other uh, these other things kind of on the side that are just nice and steady that are gonna you know yeah. in the event that you're in a trough of you know freelance woes um, you know right. they just they always come you know yeah. they're, they're like a, and they can I, be a long anyone yeah. yeah it's a long time and even when you do get a check a, such a big chunk of it is taxes. Mm-hmm. And you don't get to yep. keep that whole that whole chunk. It's a whole lot of you're paying a lot out out of pocket, and it's yeah. it's it's nice. And I you know I don't hear a whole lot of people talk about that. So it's like I I thank you for at least you know even being forthcoming to say that you do have this extra thing on the side right. that you're doing to, yeah. just for that steadier income. Like I for me I I work uh, pretty much full time at a bookstore as well, which oh, is, yeah. and so yeah. you know I do you know forty hours there, but I'm also doing this and a lot of other, uh, you know, the narrative type writing and freelancing that I do. So it's like, yeah, like, yeah. you know, you're doing that work that you're proud of, but I, sometimes on the side, you're doing this other thing to help subsidize it in, in a way. Right. So it's cool. Like, well, thanks yeah. for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I also really like having work that I don't have to use my writing brain for, you know, yeah. like I think like, yeah, working at bookstore would be nice that way too. It's like, you can really focus all your energy and your creative, you know, energy onto that project that you want to do after work versus, you know, when I've had jobs where I've been writing a lot, I don't usually pursue my passion projects as easily. So, Yeah. As I, you know, wind down here and kind of let you get, let you get out of here and, um, and so forth. Uh, I'd just like to ask you like, what, what's still, what excites you and what brings you back to the reporter notebook and really just excites you to the point where you want to dive in to, you know, pursue something longer, you know, what, what still gets you up out of bed in the morning when it comes to narrative journalism? Yeah, I think that's actually a really hard question to answer right now because I just finished this book and I've been doing the book tour and, um, kind of completely immersed in that and it took a lot out of me to mm. do this book. I mean, I feel pretty exhausted. <laughs> um, so I know I'll get back there. You know, I like, I always keep a journal, like a notebook with me and jot down ideas. And, but I think I, I right now I'm just like, I think I need a little break. You know, I'm not pursuing any big stories right now. So I think I'll, you know, I'll do some shorter uh, pieces, but yeah, I think it's going to take me a little while to like get back into that in depth narrative journalism that I love, um, simply because I I feel a little like I uh, you know used up all that energy working on this book for, for right now. So yeah, um, I know yeah. I'll get there again, but yeah, <laughs> it's like. That's a tough question right now. Oh, of course. Of course. Well, what do you do? What do you like to do to unplug your writer brain? Like what other activities do you like to do to, you know, get away from that to help recharge the batteries? Um, yeah, anything outside really helps me. Um, read, you know, reading, just like reading for fun. Um, it's also great. Um, I think, you know, when I was working on the book, what really helped was doing some uh, residencies, like where you go somewhere where there's very little internet connection. Um, 
and you, or there's like no cell phone reception. Hmm. Um, and having that be a space that you can just kind of sit with your own thoughts a lot. Um, that's always really helped me. Nice. And, uh, where can people find you online, Blair? Um, I have a website, blairbriody.com or you know, on Facebook or Twitter. Okay, yeah, so you're at, is it just at Blair Briotti? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah Fan- Okay, fantastic. Well, Blair, thank you uh, so much for jumping on the podcast, and uh, you know, hopefully we'll resolve some, some of those tech issues. I know this last half yeah. is going to come out pretty pretty damn well perfect, um, but we'll address okay. anything okay. else uh, in, in the future. But uh, have a happy Thanksgiving, okay. and uh, thank you so much yeah, for coming on the too. show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This is a lot of fun. You're welcome. Congratulations again. Happy Thanksgiving, and we'll talk later. That's a wrap on episode 77 with journalist Blair Brody. Congrats to her on the new book and for winning the contest for It Takes a Boom. As we have come to the end of the show, I ask if you dig the podcast, leave an honest review on iTunes. That offer from the top of the show still applies. And also, head over to brendanomera.com for show notes, as well as a chance to subscribe to my monthly newsletter. Yes, monthly. I give out my book recommendations for the month, as well as what you might have missed from the podcast. Once a month, no spam, you can't beat it. And you know what? And I will be right here next week for another conversation about creating works of nonfiction. Have a CNF and good week.